0: of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. We return to this um, second chapter of Peter, which is, I believe, very sobering and very weighty as we consider the work of our enemy, the work of false teachers, the the forces of evil that are at work in this present world. We come this morning to verses 4 through 10, and we're going to consider the idea of being kept for eternity kept for eternity. It's this idea coming together of the eternal deliverance and the eternal condemnation of the Lord. He, he keeps both for eterni- eternity, the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, the, the wicked and those who love him. And before we come to our text, just want to remind you we're in the, the middle of the second chapter. And in the second chapter, Peter is really taking a deep dive. He, he's given a deep dive description as to the nature and the work and the heart of false teachers. And again, it's a, a weighty and, and a difficult chapter to handle just from the perspective of understanding what it is that we are up against in the world. He has already shown us in the first three verses that false teachers are crafty exploiters. They are Deceitful, and they seek to to take advantage of the people of God and, and of people in general by falsifying the word of God. He gives further description in verses ten through twenty-two, saying that they are bold sinners. They are bold in, in their sin. They run headlong into their sin, and they are enslaved enticers. So those are kind of the three nutshell definitions that that Peter gives us. So they're bold sinners. And they are enslaved enticers, they are enslaved to their sin and they seek to entice us, entice the world, to follow after them into their sin. but in between all that in verses four through 10 as we'll see today, Peter kind of pauses and he stops in this description to to reassure, to encourage and to build up the church in light of this to remind the church that the Lord is sovereign. the Lord keeps you, he protects you, he will preserve the righteous just as we'll see in the text as he preserved Noah and Lot as righteous men in their day. So let's turn to our text and and read God's word for us today. I'll ask if you would stand with me as we give attention to the reading of scripture. 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through the first part of verse 10. This is holy, inerrant, inspired scripture. The very word Of God. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So, so if all of these things, verse 9 then says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now, would you join me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we first want to praise your great and mighty name. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All glory and honor and praise is due to you and you alone. You're glorious and mighty. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first. And the last, the one with whom there is no beginning, the one in whom there is no end. Lord, we are but your people, people of your pasture and the sheep of your hand, and we just want to praise you. We just want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to give our lives as pure and pleasing and acceptable sacrifices of worship to you, the Almighty God. Lord, when we consider that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at war with you, loving the deeds of the flesh, loving being in darkness, and yet at that time, when there was no good in us, You sent Christ, your Son. You sent Him to reconcile to Himself a people to be your possession. You sent your Son to die on a cross with our sins laid upon Him, bearing the burden and the weight and the wrath in our place. Lord, how can we neglect so great a salvation? How can our spirits be be unmoved as we consider this great and glorious work of Christ? How could we continue with a lackluster devotion to you as we think about the price that was paid to redeem us from the pits and the path of hell? Lord, would you stamp eternity on our minds and would you would you bring that work of Christ to the forefront of our minds as we consider your word today? Lord, for us because of that work that we offer our lives back to you, Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you make your word clear? Would you give us application of the truth? Would you exhort and encourage and correct and reprove and rebuke, Lord, with your word. Lord, I pray that we would engage our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are humbled and eager and ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, would you help us in this time for the the works and the efforts of men will fail in in this work of preaching and hearing the word. But by the power of your spirit, you're able to write your word upon each of our hearts. You're able to break us of patterns of sin. You're able to deliver us from the snare and the temptation of the devil. You're able to encourage our faint and weary hearts. Lord, I pray that that would be your work today among your people. Pray, Lord, that you would encourage the weary heart. Pray that you would cause to press on the one who is fighting under the weight and burden of sin. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would fan into flame the gifts that he has given us to be used in the service of our great king, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you conform us to his image? Would you receive all honor and glory and praise through all things today? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So again, we are kept for eternity, kept for eternity. The the primary point of this passage is very clear. The Lord preserves those who he counts righteous in Christ. He preserves us by giving us the strength to resist temptation and the truth by which we stand up against falsehood. That's Peter's point here. He preserves the righteous. He preserves us by strengthening us. He preserves us by giving us the truth, but we must take in that truth. We must submit to that truth. We must live according to that truth. The Lord preserves the righteous by causing us to walk in righteousness. While He does that, He readies the wicked for judgment, and He readies judgment for the wicked. Lord holds these dual parallel paths where the righteous are kept and protected and pressed on and preserved and the wicked who do not want to come under the lordship saving authority of Christ have their judgment reserved and ready to be poured out when they enter into eternity. As those who are in Christ, we stand upon this as a hopeful promise a hopeful promise that puts strength in our stride because we know whatever we face, the Lord will preserve. Dear Saint, I hope you hear this as a sober warning too because the judgment that the Lord will heap upon the unrighteous is eternity in hell. And as we hear of that, we should be stirred up to preach and proclaim Christ. Peter points us to the Lord's preservation through Christ, we should see that Christ is the chief example and the chief means of resisting temptation and resisting falsehood. Think about the reality of the spiritual battle we're in, the spiritual battle that plays out in this chapter. Dear friends, our our minds, our, our eyes, our gaze must be fixed upon Christ because he's the means by which we resist temptation, and he's the means by which we overcome falsehood. We look to Christ, we run toward Christ. Christ is the preserver of the righteous. Dear friends, let's also remember that he is the executor of justice. It is Christ who returns on, on the great white horse with the sword, to tread underfoot the winepress of God's wrath on the unrighteous. So Christ is Savior, Christ is Judge. Let's look to that Savior. Let's see Him. Let's strive after Him. Let's strive to honor Him in the way that we live. As we look to the text, we want to see kind of three headings. We want to consider the pattern of God's judgment, the pictures of God's preservation, And the promises for the future. So the the pattern of judgment, the pictures of preservation, and the promises for the future. Verses 4 through 6, we begin and see the pattern of judgment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them into the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So there's three examples that show this pattern of God's judgment, and they're kind of specific and unique examples. So we want to look at all three of them in a little bit of, of individual depth. Peter begins by saying that the Lord did not spare the angels when they sinned. So what angels is Peter referring to? There are some who would draw this to Genesis chapter 6 and kind of draw it into the Lord's judgment at the flood. There in Genesis 6, we see the story of the sons of God and the daughters of men being joined together and, and having children. And then the Lord immediately thereafter renders judgment upon the world. Now, I I don't know that that is the best interpretation here because Peter gives a specific focus to the time of the flood, and I think that what we really need to look at here is the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan, the the chief of all evil. The the story of Lucifer, I think, is what Peter is pointing to here with the fall of angels and how they are are put into the pits of darkness, and and the story of Lucifer, if you were to go look for it in Scripture, there's not just one passage where you could kind of go and say, okay, here's what happened, here's the Lord's judgment, and here's where he goes and, and where he remains. It's just interwoven throughout Scripture, but Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14 verses 12 and 13 give us one good picture of what happened When Lucifer fell, and what was the Lord's response? Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 13, about the chief of fallen angels, the text says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. So what caused Satan to fall? What caused this angel in the presence of God in heaven, what caused him to fall? It was pride. It was the sin of desiring to put himself on an equal grounds with God Almighty. It was the desire to elevate himself that he might have a throne whereby he would receive honor and glory and worship. His pride overwhelmed him. And as we think about the Lord's response, we need to think and understand that the Lord responds thoroughly and swiftly to the sin of pride. And and when you think about what this was, ultimately, this was a perversion of worship, perversion of worship, because Satan, Lucifer, wanted to be worshiped. And, And so, friends, as we think about God's judgment, let us think carefully about how we must guard right, biblical, God-honoring, God-ordained worship, both in the church and in our lives each and every day. So Lucifer fell, and some angels followed after him, and when they sinned, the Lord cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. The fall was due to pride. Pride is really the root of all sin. When you really get down to it, it's the desire to elevate oneself or the action of elevating oneself over the Lord, whether it's elevating your standards over the Lord so that you can pursue your own desires, or whether it's elevating yourself to want to receive some type of honor and worship and glory that is only due to the Lord. So the angels fell due to their pride and the Lord's judgment was extreme. The Lord's judgment was extreme. It was eternal. It was swift. It was destructive. And it's interesting to, to kind of consider what Peter is really saying here. When he says that, that the Lord cast them into hell, he uses this Greek term tartaru. Tartaru. And really, I think what he's doing is bar- borrowing from Greek mythology. Of his day, which is interesting, but this is spirit inspired scripture. So we have to ask, well, what is Peter trying to accomplish? Tartaru ties together to the Greek mythology of the place of Tartarus, which is the lowest, kind of the lowest hell in Greek mythology. It's where the, the worst perpetrators of evil and the most powerful perpetrators of evil would be cast when they were judged. And so Peter effectively says, when the Lord judged the angels, He sent them into the deepest, darkest corner and pits of hell. He constrained them there. They are bound there. They have no ability to get themselves out of that deep, dark corner of hell. The ins and outs of how these angels were in the presence of God and worshiping and yet still fell into this sin and then were cast from heaven, to, to be bound in hell for all eternity. The ins and outs are really one of the more challenging ideas in all of Scripture. And Peter gives us nothing really to consider here. So we're really not going to consider a whole lot of it. We're just going to put the idea there. And what we want to think about is what we can see here. What is clear here is the picture of God's judgment. How extreme the Lord's judgment is to those who rejected the glory of of his presence and chose to follow after lucifer as he sought to elevate himself to the position of god and and the lord gives a special reserved furious judgment to those who are in this blessed position and then chase after sin so with that it's easy to to think good night those angels are, are have are completely unreasonable let us draw that to our present day. Let us remember that we have the entire revelation of God's holy scripture, his entire word to us, and to those to whom the Lord gives much, from them he expects much. We have the entire revelation of scripture, everything pertaining to life and godliness, so we ask ourselves the question, how faithful are we being? in this blessed position of having all Scripture given to us. Not just do we have the entire canon of Scripture, but we have Scripture at our fingertips. We have God's Word in our hands or in our pockets at almost every moment of the day. Are you being faithful to live according to all that He has written? Are you being faithful to entrust His Word to others? Are you being faithful to be an example to those who look to you as a mentor or as a discipler? Are you being faithful? Consider the Lord's response to these angels when they fell from their blessed position. We must be faithful stewards. Peter's second example that he shows in the pattern of God's judgment, thankfully, is a lot more straightforward. We come to, to the story of the great flood of Noah's day. Verse five, He did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. When Peter says he did not spare the ancient world, that gives us the idea that the Lord didn't hold back. He he did not restrain any of his wrath as he poured out the fury of his anger upon sinners. He, he didn't become squeamish. He didn't look away. He, he didn't hesitate. But when that moment came, when the Lord decided to pour out his wrath, he unleashed absolute fury. Those who refused to come to Christ pictured, I think, very well in the flood Those who refuse to come to Christ will have no withholding of their eternal sentence. They will be utterly, completely ruined and destroyed. That's because the holy justice of God requires nothing less. If God is holy, and he is, if God is just, and he is, he must punish sinners for all eternity. It's either that God's wrath is poured out on you, for all eternity, or is poured out upon Christ at the cross, there's no in between. God's fury, God's holiness, His justice requires that eternal wrath. And again, I, I think a flood is such a appropriate picture, such an appropriate picture of what happens when God unleashes His wrath. If you've ever watched a picture, a video online of like a tsunami. You see that this big wall of water, it it won't be stopped. Anything, anyone in its path will be utterly ruined. There is no salvation from that tidal wave of water. So it is with God's justice. There's no salvation except in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's great hope in that if you are a believer, if you are in him today. But it's a fearful thing if you choose to fall into the hands of an angry and holy God. Genesis 6-5 tells us of the wickedness of Noah's day. Just to consider, to kind of understand, again, in the pattern of God's judgment. Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually the intents of the heart were only evil continually similar could be said i believe of our day that that the world is so far gone so far given into sin and we must be like noah we'll talk about that in a minute but we must be set apart we must be different we must see this unbridled pursuit of passion and lust, and temporal, earthly pleasure. And we must be set apart. We must be holy. We must be the people who are God's own possession. The Lord's response to that evil, if we were to read, and we'll read some of Genesis 6 in in a few moments, but the Lord's response to that evil was that he was grieved. He, He was broken. He was really sorry that he had ever created man and he determined to wipe off every man and every beast from the face of the earth. Let that be a clear reminder to you, Saint, of how seriously the Lord takes sin. Let it remind you that sin grieves the Lord. You want to grieve the one who gave his son to die on the cross for your sins? What we see is a picture that shows that the Lord is not an angry dictator, but he is a holy and loving God. He hates sin. It grieves him. It it breaks him when his people run into sin. But in that love and in that grief, he remains holy and he will not leave the unjust unpunished. There's third picture in the pattern of God's judgment. Verse 6 it says if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Lord rained down brimstone and fire from the heavens and reduced these cities to ashes because of their evil and wickedness. This is the pattern of God's judgment. Complete, utter destruction. Notice the, the pattern that you see of the people. Verse 7 says, He rescued righteous Lot when he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Sensual conduct of unprincipled men. They were led by intense desires of the flesh. Do you see the progression here? So you you go back to the example of Noah, and you tie in that story of the sons of God and the daughters of men coming together in immorality, and you see this progression. There's pride with the angels, with Lucifer. There is sexual immorality. And then you come to Sodom, and there is homosexual immorality that is the pattern of sin and if you look at the world around us today it's exactly what we see today that should cause us to to fear and to tremble in a way because when you see that progression what do you know is near the lord's judgment the lord's judgment it says Romans 1 in a nutshell A debased mind is given over to sin, and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Friend, have you ever had a loved one, perhaps, who appears to be given over? Do do you think about that pattern where they just dig deeper and further and more, they, they run headlong into that sin. That's what happens when the Lord gives a person and a people over to sin. They just continue to work their way deeper into this pit. Now, we consider that. Again, we should pause and it should cause us to tremble and fear. Let's also remember that we have a mighty, mighty Savior that... One might dig so deep into this pit of sin, but they are never beyond the reach of Christ. He is the one who can save the vilest of sinners. He saved you. He saved me. There are none who are beyond his reach. So when you see judgment coming, when you see someone given over, that's not the time to pull away. That's the time to put on more steam with the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Because he is mighty to save. It's amazing that our world and culture today thinks that it can just run deeper and and more headlong into this immorality that we can call for the celebration of all kinds of wicked sin and, and that there will be no ramifications. There will be no repercussions, but the scriptures are clear. The Lord will judge the unrighteous. And the Lord, as as you think about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about the flood, He he judges broadly. He will judge nations and entire people groups as they run into sin. We must address these sins of our culture. You you think about those two big ones that we saw within the people in Noah's day, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we must address those sins. But friends, let's not miss the root sin of all that. Going back to the angels, the sin of pride, self-centeredness, and wanton pleasure. Those who are just so given to pleasing the flesh. We must make war. We must make war. We must know, friends, in the context here, that this is the end of false teachers. Remember what's on either side of this passage that we're looking at. It's the description of false teachers. Peter is effectively saying, This is what is coming to false teachers. The Lord will judge them as ruthless, immoral, cowards, and sinners. Ours is to stand firm, to stand upon the word, to be, we'll, we'll see in the example of Noah in a moment, but to be heralds and proclaimers of the truth, to hold fast the word of life, to hold forth the word of life, to showcase the goodness and the glory and the transforming power of Jesus Christ. As we live in an immoral culture, and an immoral world, we proclaim the truth. We stand up against the falsehood and proclaim the truth. So there's the pattern of judgment, and then there's the pictures of preservation. We kind of move forward, but to move forward, we've got to move backward a little bit as well in the text. Look kind of verses 5 through 8. Firstly, Peter says, He didn't spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we've got these two pictures of Noah and Lot, and the Lord's preservation, and and there's distinct exhortations that we can take from each story. And Noah, I think it's very clear, he was a preacher, a proclaimer, a herald of righteousness. But let's consider the broader context of Noah. Turn back, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 6. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. I want to just read a few verses there to understand the Lord's work in and through Noah as he set forth as an example to us now so we want to focus in at verses 8 and 9 but we'll read verse 7 to give us a little bit of context this is the Lord speaking it says the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them but verse 8 But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Before he is described to us as being a preacher of righteousness, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That was not by his merit. It was not by his doing but by the eternal choice of God. Noah is as one who's be described in Ephesians 1. He was chosen. He was predestined by the foreknowledge of God to be set apart to be adopted as God's son that he might be holy and blameless. That is Noah before being a preacher of righteousness, he was chosen of the Lord. The account continues. He didn't just find favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. He's a righteous man. He was blameless, and he walked with God. Do you see the order here? The Lord chose Noah. The Lord changed Noah And then the Lord charged Noah to go and be a proclaimer of righteousness. The Lord saves him. The Lord sanctifies him. And then we see Noah serving the Lord. We must never get that out of order. We must never get those wires crossed because that is God's process. That is how a ministry is powerful. And I don't mean a ministry of a a preacher or a church, but the ministry of an individual who is carrying forth the ministry and the message of reconciliation is that you're chosen, it's that the Lord changes you, and then he charges you. Then he sends you out to be a preacher and proclaimer of righteousness. Noah's message, though he was mocked and scorned in his day, Noah's message carried weight and had power of his life. He he was laughed at. He was scorned. He was mocked surely by the evil and wicked people of his day, but they knew that something was different. This was not one who lived like the ungodly people of of that day, but then had this strange message that he proclaimed. No, he was set apart. He walked with God. He, He gave his life to the service of the Most High. This should press us on in the service of the Lord and in the call to be righteous, to press us on in the, in the need to live godly lives and to proclaim the truth boldly. So, so that's kind of the, the progression. Chosen, changed, charged. Noah, in the face of false teachers, remember that's the context again of, of Peter's writing. In the face of false teachers, he was a preacher and a herald of righteousness. He preached and proclaimed the laws and the commands and the good news of Jesus Christ. This must be our response in godless, wicked days of falsehood and false teachers. If we want to be delivered from the days and the ways of the unrighteous, we must contend earnestly for the truth. We must counter falsehood with truth. We read 1 John 4, 1 earlier. We must test the spirits. We we must test to determine whether or not things and people are true or false. If you want to stand firm, you must be willing to test the spirits to determine whether or not something is true or error, whether or not someone is in Christ or a child and a son of Satan. Gone are the days when the culture will accept Christianity. Gone are the days when when the culture even has this sense of almost biblical morality. We live in days where we must actively, boldly, wisely, shrewdly defend, proclaim, and stand upon the truth of God and the truth of His word. As we mentioned briefly earlier, we must be like Noah. We must be those who are set apart. Those who live lives that indicate that not only are, are we proclaiming these things, but we live according to them. It means we don't pursue the things the world pursues. It means we don't find pleasure in the same things that our culture and our world finds pleasure in. It means that we're different means that you might actually be laughed at you might be hated you might be scorned but the lord delights in you and you delight in him and his favor there's a second picture of god's preservation the man lot who i admit is a curious inclusion in this in this story in this picture says, the Lord rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Again, this is an interesting inclusion. You think about Lot. Genesis 13, uh, Lot and his uncle Abram are looking over the land, and they're going to part ways, and Abram tells Lot, you can pick whatever portion of the land you want. And what does Lot pick? The best of the land, where where he will have plentiful land and water for his herds. And he gives no second thought to anyone but himself. Think about Genesis 19, the account of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot makes choice after choice after choice that we would question that are, are not really righteous choices. He even offered his own daughters... To the, to the men of Sodom to appease their, their fleshly desires. So in many ways, you think about Lot. He was not a righteous man. There were many things that he did that we would not consider to be right or honoring the Lord. But notice that three times in verses 7 and 8, three times the Lord describes him as Righteous. What in the world is going on? Well, it's that we must remember that this is first a credited and imputed righteousness. Lot was considered righteous because the Lord had counted him righteous, even though he didn't follow all the things the Lord commanded. He was chosen of the Lord. He was set apart as one who was in Christ, and eventually his life would follow and line up. That's the pattern of salvation the Lord saves and then he changes but in the meantime lot made a lot of bad decisions and that just stands out to us as an example and a reminder that first you are chosen and then the lord works into your heart and life this outworking of righteousness and holiness it's the process of sanctification So the consideration then that we give to Lot is what we see in verse 8. So so the example that we saw from Noah is that he was a preacher and a herald of righteousness and, and he lived a righteous life to back up that proclamation. So what about from Lot? What do we see from him? It says, what he saw and heard while he was living among those evil people, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. His soul was tormented by evil. And that's an example to follow. Consider the world around you today. The ungodliness, the immorality, the unrighteousness, the the unbridled pursuit of worldly lust and worldly passions. You should be tormented in your soul to live among such ungodliness. That's where we follow after Lot's example. And and with all the vile wickedness of our day, I I think we have to be on guard that we don't become desensitized to how much of an offense these sins are to a holy God. That's why we need to see this pattern of His judgment. Because we need to remember that the Lord will judge the unrighteous. We don't need to, to let this creep in and to to overwhelm our minds so that we don't even realize and recognize sin. If you get to a point where, where perhaps in the workplace you, you don't even hear the, the language that is being used, that's the point at which you really need to repent. But before you get to the point of partaking of that, repent of the fact that you're not offended by the things that the Lord hates. And, and you could go apply that principle broadly to, to many other areas of life, but do not let yourself be desensitized to sin just because it's so prevalent in our day. I think one of the greatest means of resisting temptation is to be repulsed by sin. If you don't hate sin, then you're going to desire it. So if you want to resist the lust of the flesh, Men, if you want to resist the lust of your flesh, hate those things which the Lord hates. Don't let your eyes look upon a woman and be drawn to that, but hate the fact that you are even considering being drawn to it. If you want to resist temptation, you need to hate sin. Lot may not have always responded properly, but his soul was tormented by the evil around him. And I think if we're all honest, and we should be honest, especially with ourselves and between you and the Lord, we would all say that we we fail that test of being tormented. Tormented by the evil. You need to resist temptation. You need to hate sin. So we have the pattern of judgment, the pictures of preservation, and then in verses 8 and 9, we come to the promises for the future. The promises for the future. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So now Peter has done what only Peter can do. He writes this huge, long, run-on sentence in the form of an if-then statement. So if the Lord is able to, if the Lord punished the angels, if he brought the flood on the earth, If he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, if he preserved Noah, if he preserved Lot, since the Lord did all these things, you can take this promise to the bank. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Because of all these things, we have confidence. Because of all these things, we have confidence that he will deliver the just from temptation. And he will keep the unrighteous under judgment so the lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation rescue there is the same word that jesus used in his model prayer when he said lord deliver us from evil It's the same greek word he is able to rescue or to deliver it's the idea of delivering from something and to something from temptation to abiding in the lord And there's the word temptation. This is a trying or a testing or proving. It's the trial or the proving of one's character and integrity and virtue. It's the testing that the Lord uses to prove whether or not you have godly virtue, whether or not your heart is godly, or if you still follow after the lust of the flesh. Putting those together, the Lord knows how to deliver us to himself as we are tried and proven by the temptations of Satan. The Lord himself does not tempt. The Lord allows Satan to bring temptation to us, and then it's the Lord who provides the way of escape. Satan attacks, and the Lord teaches us to stand firm. How does the Lord deliver us from temptation? He draws and calls us to Himself. James 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That is how the Lord delivers you from temptation. He draws you and calls you to Himself. When you're near to the Lord, you are far from sin. When you see the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God, the trivialities of the desires of the flesh are just that. They are trivial. They are worthless. They fail compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Parents, do you teach your children about fleeing from and resisting temptation? Because the temptation is going to come. The world is full of Temptation? Do you teach your children as long as they are in your care and as long as the Lord has entrusted them to that care? Do you use the circumstances of life and the world around you to to teach them about fleeing from temptation and fleeing to the Lord? You don't have to look long or look hard to find an opportunity to teach someone how to flee temptation. Temptation is all around us, It, it really kind of is overwhelming. When you consider the temptation just being in the general world around us. We ought to be faithful to those entrusted to us and teach them. And in teaching them we are teaching ourselves to flee temptation. The Lord will deliver you as you stand firm. As you resist. As you cleanse your mind. And as you draw near to the Lord. When that happens you know with Paul that the Lord's grace is sufficient. And that his power is perfected in your weakness. That's why the Lord allows temptation because it shows us how much we must rely upon his grace. And it shows us how much his power must be at work in us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, the Lord says, or Paul says, the Lord through Paul says, with the temptation God will provide a way of escape also So that you will be able to endure it. The Lord provides a way of escape so that you will endure. When you endure, you build a reliance upon the Lord. And when you build reliance upon the Lord, you boast only in Christ. It's the great goal is that we would make our boast only in Christ. Not only does the Lord preserve the righteous rescue the godly from temptation, but he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will repay. When people walk in sin, our, our duty is not to wish vengeance upon them, but to proclaim the truth, to try to deliver them, to be the Lord's instrument in delivering them from that condemnation. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against forces of evil. Our battle is not against some person who is committing a sin, but the heart that allows that sin to come forth in their life. This battle against the heart, our aim is to reveal the heart in sin. We don't just take aim at the action, though sometimes that might be the necessary first step. But rather, we drive toward the heart to identify why this person pursues that which the Lord hates. The tools that we use in this are the truth of the gospel and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And notice, I find the inclusion of that first part of verse 10 interesting in our day. Peter says, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. I don't, know, I don't know that there could be two more clear markers uh, of one, false teachers, as we see in this context, but just two, the, the people of the world in general. They indulge in, in corrupt, deceitful desires And they despise authority because God is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. The Lord says, this is how you must live. The world despises authority. People despise even being told in submission to the word of God that this is how you must live. Those are common sins to our day. So to tie this together. We must make war against sin. We must make war against our own sin. Let's not lose sight of, uh, of the fact that it begins in our own hearts. We make war against our own sin. We, we take the battle to the spiritual forces of evil while we make war with spiritual weapons, the weapons that the Lord has given us. Go read Ephesians chapter 6 about those weapons for our battle. We must... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We must stand firm in our day and resist temptation. We must remember that the Lord preserves the righteous by giving us the truth with which to make war against falsehood and by giving us the glorious good news of the gospel of Christ which keeps and holds and presses us forward. Must stand with courage. We look to this coming deliverance. And we know and understand the promises of judgment. Think about what we heard last week that the Lord often works by calling his people to remember. Is that not what the Lord does in this text today? These are past events that we remember to help us look forward to a future judgment. Remember the judgment of God. Remember the preservation of God for the righteous. Then you, dear saint, stand firm. Remain. Make war against sin and flesh and all deceitfulness and all falsehood. Contend for the truth. Contend for the faith. Stand firm for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit. And he will supply every grace and every strength. Let's pray. Father, we.